to overwhelmingly reveal the difficulty that awaits those who profess faith in Christ. Consider just a few passages of Scripture. Jesus, we read just just a chapter before, says to his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then Paul, on many different occasions, speaks concerning this, this harsh reality that, that exists in the life uh, of, of believers. He says in 2 Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then later, in, in 2 Timothy, he writes, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then again in 2 Timothy as well, chapter 3, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And a few verses from that, he says, very frankly, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, James recognizing this very reality in the midst of the life of believers, those who follow Christ, encourages those in the midst of those trials by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then Peter, seeking to maybe encourage uh, the scattered believers uh, because of persecution, says to them in First Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Otherwise, Peter seemed to think that that would be the norm for believers to face suffering and trials. But not only just reading specific verses, but the testimony of the godly throughout the Bible further support this undesirable reality. From the very beginning, we find Abel being murdered. By his brother Cain. Joseph, Jacob's son, was, was bullied and mistreated by his brothers and sold into slavery. Moses was constantly uh, despised by those who were supposed to follow him. David was constantly pursued by his enemies. The prophets were ignored and hated and many of them were killed for the very words that they spoke. The disciples were rejected and many of them faced a martyr's death. And Paul himself was constantly beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately put to death. So, throughout the Old Testament, we find the testimony of God's people to be one of struggle and oppression and sorrow over their circumstances. A few more scriptures just to underlie that. Jeremiah writes, my, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. And later in Lamentations, Jeremiah writes again, The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has has turned into mourning. The psalmist writes on several different occasions, things like this, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Or, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And again, my soul melts away. For sorrow. Now these are but a few isolated examples of the sorrow and difficulty and trials and tribulations that was and will continue to be the experience of God's people. That includes all of us who would name the name of Christ this morning. This very real expectation of those who choose to identify themselves with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, It paints quite a bleak picture, does it not? It sounds that way this morning as I open. It sounds very 
disconcerting. It seems to be more counterproductive than it is inviting. And if this is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture from the very beginning to the end, and might I add, it is, then choosing such a destiny would seem to be logically foolish. Now, you might want to stop here and say, well, wait a second, Randy, what are you trying to convince us of this morning? Are you trying to, to turn us away? Well, it poses some questions as we read these, these, these kinds of texts. Is it God's desire for his people to, to experience troublesome and hopeless lives here on earth? Is that God's desire for you? Why would God allow anyone to go through constant and consistent difficulty, let alone those who give up everything to commit their lives to his service? Because of the scriptures or scriptures like the ones that we've read so far or looked at, the outlook of the so-called Christian life by many is considered to be foolish and vain. And we can somewhat understand that, at least on the surface. Why would you choose such an existence? One full of trials and suffering described throughout the pages of scriptures. Why not instead rather eat, drink, and be merry? It sounds better, doesn't it? Let's just have a good time. Let's live it up. Let's have fun. I mean, if the alternative is suffering and trials and difficulties and the things like we've read, sorrow, our bones wasting away, why not turn that in so that we can eat, drink, and be merry? I mean, does God intend for his creatures to be void of happiness and always grasping hopelessly at this thing that we call joy? Now, the answer to such questions, like so many others that we might raise concerning the word of God, depends on what it is that satisfies you. How you or anyone else might answer some of these questions will depend on what it is that satisfies you. And so I guess the question for us this morning, as it often is, is what is it that truly satisfies? satisfies us what is it that we truly desire to pursue in this life i hope that we'll see we we either understand or we will see that the ultimate answer does not rest in external circumstances the ups and downs of life but rather on the internal and the eternal pursuit of our lives now let me Flip the coin over for a moment, or maybe for the rest of the sermon. While it is absolutely essential that the believer understand the reality of following Christ in this world and count the cost before taking up the cross, we need to be reminded, not just this morning, but this morning and many other times of our lives, we need to be reminded of the everlasting joy and the enduring hope that God passionately desires for his people to experience no matter what the circumstances surrounding our lives may be. There will be ups, there will be downs, but God's overwhelming desire for his people is joy, everlasting joy and enduring hope. It is this everlasting joy and this enduring hope that lies at the very heart of Jesus' desire for his disciples on the night before his death. 
The disciples had extremely high hopes about what was possible because of this one whom they had called their master, their teacher. They had likely imagined in their own minds scenarios about how Jesus would deliver them and provide a wonderful life for his people. Though they were left confused about many things, as John often reminds us, they didn't understand a lot. They weren't at all confused about what they were hoping for. They had prayed for it for years. Their ancestors had told stories about it for generations after generations. Messiah would come and he would set his people free. The disciples weren't certain about much. But it appears that they were ready to go all in with this one whom they called their teacher. He was going to change everything. But the disciples were about to face the single most life-altering disappointment that they would ever know. As we find ourselves in this text, they were unaware, but they were about to face the most life-altering disappointment that they had ever experienced to this point. They would stand by and they would watch Rome and the religious elite of their culture beat and mock the source of their hopes and dreams. They they would witness the life-shattering, hope-crushing death of the one in whom all their hope and joy had been invested. And the grief and sorrow that would result would prove to be more than many of us could even possibly handle. And understandably so. And it was in light of these impending circumstances that Jesus says in John 16, verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another. What is it that he says to us a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We, we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they, wanted to, that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will le- weep and lament. And the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give To you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Our Father, we do ask this morning as we consider this this idea of sorrow and grief that, that is turned into joy. I pray, Lord, that we ourselves would experience the joy that you have promised from. This moment that we read about in scripture throughout these last days here on earth while your kingdom is coming. 
So, Father, I pray this morning as we consider this, that you will thrill our hearts with the joy that you've promised, that we would consider the great hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may we never forget that, but be reminded of that this morning, especially as we turn our attention toward this Advent season and celebrate the the coming of our Savior, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, as we walk through this text, I wanted to consider this text under five headings or five ideas. And I'll give those to you to start with. Number one, the, the harsh reality of unexpected circumstances. Number two, the, the help of indescribable joy. Or excuse me, the hope, I don't know which one I put on the screen, but the hope of indescribable joy. Number three, a vivid illustration. Number four, a thrilling reunion. And number five, a perfect joy. When Jesus told his disciples these words, a little while and you will not see me. He was speaking of his impending death. This was the night before his crucifixion. And he was speaking to his disciples. And this phrase was speaking particularly of the hour that had arrived upon him. Speaking of his impending death and the re- that would result in the separation of this great teacher from those who had followed him for a number of years. And though the disciples did not understand what it was exactly that Jesus was speaking about, they were still clueless about many things. Jesus was seeking to prepare them for the difficulty that they would soon face in the hours that would prevail from his death on the cross over the Three days that followed. They would indeed face sorrow and grief as a result of his dying. Now, while Jesus did not stop, while speak, while Jesus did not stop with the speaking of his departure, he goes beyond that. It was nevertheless a harsh reality that that had to take place. This was something that had to happen. Jesus was speaking about. One which the disciples were not expecting. We're reminded of that. Remember when, when Jesus was speaking about his own death and, and Peter's response. Peter says, no, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus' response to him was what? Surprisingly, get behind me, Satan. I mean, they hadn't conceived of this. Even though Jesus was speaking to it. And it seems plain to us reading backwards in, from this point but they, they didn't get it yet. They, they weren't expecting what was about to come. And regardless of what would follow, that was, is what we know of, the, the resurrection, this event would cause the disciples a great deal of sorrow and grief. And while Jesus' words spoken here, recorded by John, uh, are in light of a historical event, the, the, the crucifixion of our Savior, they're... There still remains a lesson for us even today as we're looking back on that. It's no surprise to us when when Jesus says, a little while and you will not see me. We understand easily what he's talking about, but, but how might that speak to us or impact us even today in the aftermath of this event? Though we have never ex- experienced or endured the, the painful Experience of watching our Savior be crucified. We, we weren't there. We didn't see it. We still must undergo the painful and grievous experience that comes as a result of 
Jesus' death. Jesus' death was necessary because of sin. We know that. There was no other way, and I stress, there was no other way for God to deal justly with sin while still justifying sinners like you and me. There was no other way. All who hear the gospel and respond in repentance and faith experience a death that's related to Christ. You see, in Romans 6, Paul speaks about this when he, when he uses the terminology that, that speaks of our dying with Christ and being buried with him. And, and this death that a sinner undergoes who, who then sees the cross and, and believes the cross and, and trusts in the Savior, when they do, they experience a death and it's not a pleasant thing. Now, often when we share our testimonies, we, we, they, they sound a lot better than maybe they, we experienced or walked through them in real time because of some of the difficulties that might have arisen because of our dying to sin. You see, all who have come to Christ believing the truth have experienced death to sin. And that means that most likely, not even most likely, most definitely, that means that we have experienced a death to something that we loved. Think about it. Especially those of you who, are, who come to Christ later in life. We experience a death to something that we love. It's not like we were walking along in life going, Man, I hate that I'm a sinner. This stinks. I wish there was some other way. No, we weren't walking that way. We were enjoying ourselves. We were living in sin, totally oblivious to the, to the consequences of our sinful lifestyles. We, we gloried in our own personal satisfaction. And so when we were confronted with the truth of the gospel and we, we, we for some reason, by the grace of God, heard this message and, and something within us responded by saying, yes, this is truth. And we, we respond to that truth outwardly. We did so by going through a painful experience of dying to the things that we once loved, that once enslaved us, from which we had no previous desire to be set free from. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you never repented of your sins and trusted in the gospel, that's where you dwell. You may not recognize it because you're enjoying life. It's grand. You see, we often present the gospel as though it's, it's this message for people who are down and out and despondent. And it is for those. But it's for those who are clueless as well. It is the, the preaching of the gospel, we pray, that, that brings that to your attention, that confronts your joy in sin and causes you to go... No, there's something grander, there's something greater. And that is the very gospel message of Jesus Christ. While this gospel is truly good news for those who are down and out and despondent and despair and don't know which way to go, and good news for those who are on the top of the world, it doesn't mean that the road to which it leads a lost sinner is going to be a pleasant one. And in this sense, we too, those of us who have come through this or heard this message and responded and and experienced this dying with Christ, we've experienced a sorrow and a grief that comes as a result of the death of Christ on the cross. And even today, we as believers experience the continue, experience the continued grief and sorrow that comes from dying with Christ or our sin because sin seeks to be revived in our lives every day. You ever experience that? 
believer who, 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 who is mature in your faith and walks with Christ, do you, do you experience sin seeking to revive itself in you daily? Those things that seek to draw you away, those times where you kind of wish maybe you weren't a Christian and you could do certain things. You ever experience that? Now, nobody's going to nod their heads right now by steal. Not me. But if, if we've walked in this world as believers, we understand that. Reviving of sin within us. And we are called to take up our cross daily and follow Him. And so we're reminded regularly that the impending death of Christ that these disciples were facing is a reality. Well, we'll never see Christ re-crucified. No, that's not what I'm saying. But in line of that crucifixion, there continues to be this, this expectation of sorrow and grief that comes as a result of the death of Christ. We understand that the cross-centered life is, is not one of ease and comfort, but, but often of grief and sorrow that causes us to weep and lament. But Jesus doesn't stop with this harsh reality. He goes on to declare that this sorrow and grief that they would experience on that day and that I can say you and I still experience time to, from time to time will give way to something much better. This grief and sorrow would give way to the hope of indescribable joy. And I've typed that wrong. It says the help, but it's supposed to be hope. But it's both. Jesus declares that their sorrow will turn into joy. Again, the disciples didn't understand what he meant to start with, much less this. But there would come a time when they would remember these words. And these words would serve to encourage them. The joy that Jesus was speaking of would be the result of the statement that he continued with. He says... In a little while you will not see me, but again, a little while and you will see me. What? What is he trying to say here? That last statement, and again, a little while and you will see me, was the expression of, of the joy that was going to come after the sorrow and grief. Whatever Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples, it was clear that seeing him again would be inseparably tied to this ideal of joy. Something about the seeing of Jesus and joy are linked inseparably. And Jesus, of course, was speaking when he said this of the resurrection that would occur three days after the death on the cross that would reunite him with his followers. But Jesus' words were likely intended to serve as a source of the encouragement during the difficult hours. They, they didn't understand that he was going to die. They didn't understand that his resurrection was coming, though he had told them. But nevertheless, what Jesus was saying to them at this moment was, was to serve for, as an encouragement of hope during those dark hours that they were about to go through. The pain and grief of, of separation in death was a necessary path to a joy that can only come from the resurrection power of the Savior. Now, while I don't want to make too little of the historical reality of what we read here in this text, I believe it serves to remind us of the hope of joy that is promised to all of us who follow Christ. This life will continue to be filled with great difficulties. Some of you may even experience some of those this very day. Some are difficulties that are common 
to both believers and unbelievers in this life. But some of them will come as a result, a direct result of following Christ. And either way, those who trust in Christ can walk through these sorrows and these griefs with great confidence that that is not the end of the story. Let me, let me restate that again. Difficulties will be faced in this life that are common to both believers and unbelievers. But some of them will come as a direct result of your following Christ. You will face suffering and trials and sorrow and grief because you follow Christ. But there's a difference in the sorrows and the griefs that we face in this life as believers and unbelievers. Because as believers, we can walk through our sorrow and through our grief with great confidence that that is not the end of the story. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians are to pretend like everything's okay when we suffer tragedy. It doesn't mean that we have to walk around with a nice big smile on our face and a sparkle in our eyes when we suffer great tragedy. That's not what the scripture teaches. But it does teach us, as Paul clearly states it in Thessalonians, that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because we do. We have hope. Hope that, that brings about a great joy Regardless of the circumstances of life, whether they're up on top of the world or in the valley. Jesus, this master teacher, no, this Lord and Savior. God in the flesh, creator of all things, including you and I. He himself promised us that there would be joy to come. He promises the disciples that in the midst of their grief, joy would come. And then he, he uses a vivid illustration to help us to comprehend that. Because he continues by, he says, when, in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth. And then he goes through this, this, this illustration to try to help them understand. And this is common uh, in Jesus' teaching, Right? Often Jesus would turn to something that was common and earthly to illustrate a truth in order to help his followers begin to to wrap their minds around something that was spiritual and eternal beyond the the earthly. And that's what he does here. He, He takes a very common experience in life and he tries to communicate this ideal of sorrow giving way or giving birth to great joy. He uses childbirth, one of which even today many of us can relate well to. Much more so if you're a mother, but nevertheless, we can relate to. Not going to pretend that I understand it. But in the months leading up to childbirth, there's a bond between a mother and her baby. Now I've got to experience that objectively, watching that. I don't claim to understand that bond that takes place between a baby and, and a mother as she carries this child in her womb. But there is one. And many mothers will tell you of, of how they love that time. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't without its difficulties, but many of them will talk about the, the time while they were pregnant and that they, they love that time. And, and again, they're not talking about certain things. There are some certain difficulties that come along with that, but there's still this experience that Feeling for the first time the baby kicking. I can only imagine. 
and other experiences like that. Mothers often speak of those times as they reflect back on that. But even in that joyous experience, I have never heard an expectant mother say, I can't wait until labor begins. I am so looking forward to that experience. Now, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, that would be him. We decided to take a a childbirthing class together because we were clueless. She probably made me do it really more for my cluelessness than hers. But we took that to prepare us for the unknown. And during that class, I remember... Like it was yesterday. I remember sitting there because and watching. They showed us a video of a live birth. That's like the dumbest thing to do to a first-time mother, I think. But they showed us a video of a live birth. And then after that video, my wife turns to me and she says, I ain't doing that. (laughs) So the next class, you know what they do? They show us a video of a C-section. I mean, that's the alternative, right? And after that video, my wife turns to me and she says, I ain't doing that either. Well, my response was simply, well, honey, how in the world do you expect that baby to get out? I mean, we're running out of options here. But uh, the reality is that that's not something that you, you, you long for, you look forward to. And you've heard the stories of the labor pains and all that comes with that. You, you have your own. Sometimes they're exaggerated. But they should be. They warrant it, don't they? The morning of July 21st, 2000, my wife woke me up at 5.30 in the morning and said, Honey, today's the day. Well, like any good first-time father, I responded. Honey, I'm going to the office. Call me when your contractions get under five minutes. So I got up, got dressed, and went to the church. After about an hour, maybe, I don't think it was even that long, I got a phone call and my wife Kindly demanded that I return home. When I arrived home, she was doubled over the couch. And I knew without saying a word or asking any questions that her experience was not pleasant. It's the time where it's inappropriate for you to say, honey, are you okay? We all have our stories and, and we get the point. Labor is not a desirable event. It isn't pleasant or comfortable. It is, however, necessary. Whether you want to go through that experience or not, there aren't but a few options on how a baby is going to be born. It is necessary to go through. The result, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. The moment the child is born, the thought of labor fades fast away and the joy is overwhelming Exhilarating and amazing. Again, I can only express that from the experience of a father who got to be present, much less of a mother who got to to be subjectively a part of that process. What the disciples were about to face was going to be very much the same. When the process of separation begins, pain would set in. When they were separated from their teacher, the one whom they loved, the one in whom they had Gone all in with. When that process of separation, the, the labor pains began, it would be painful, but it was necessary. And the result would be well worth it. The pain of separation and death would give way to ins- indescribable joy. 
And that indescribable joy would come by means of a thrilling reunion. Because following this illustration, Jesus restates what he's already told his disciples earlier. But this time he says it in a slightly different way. He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. You see, what earlier was termed, you will see me again, turns into I will see you again. Now, the truth of what was about to happen is communicated in both statements. You will see me again and I will see you again. But suddenly the power in these words is amplified when when his focus is upon Jesus. When Jesus himself says to his followers, I will see you again. And maybe at this point something began to click. Have you ever experienced a reunion after a long separation? I mean, maybe in some sense we probably all have in one regard or another. The first moment of that, that reunion is, is exhilarating, is it not? You, know, you, you get that, your heart races, goes faster, and just that, that moment is, is kind of hard to even explain when you're reunited with that person you've been separated from. But even the reunions that we might have experienced in this life, they don't even come close to comparing with the promised reunion that Jesus seeks to communicate to his disciples when he says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Imagine if you were unexpectedly reunited with someone that you thought it was impossible to be reunited with. Imagine what that might be like. On March 26 of 2003, I lost my father-in-law. And it was the first death I had ever experienced that was personal to me. And I dealt with death many times, but it was always somebody else's loved one. But now it was one of mine. And it was a significant loss. And Chip was the first person that, again, that I'd ever experienced losing. And about a year after his death, I don't know exactly the time frame, I was sitting in the lobby of a public place. And, and, and while sitting there, I, I looked up and I caught a quick glance of a man who could have passed this Chip's twin brother. And before, before my logic and my rationale could go, dude, you're an idiot. My heart leapt inside of me at the possibility or the prospect of that actually being him. An impossible reunion. Not even impossible, but again, before my mind could catch up and... and Give me rationale. It was, it was as though I was seeing him again. And for that, that brief moment, I got to experience maybe in, in a, a small way what the impossible, a glorious reunion might feel like. Well, this was the feeling that Jesus wanted to communicate to his dearly beloved disciples. When he said, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Now, while Jesus was speaking of his initial resurrection from the dead, I believe we can take these words to heart even today in the aftermath of all these events that have already taken place. We didn't walk with Jesus physically. We didn't experience his death with our own eyes. We didn't. We weren't there when he raised from the dead. But one day. One day we will experience the full extent of his words. I will see you again. I can only imagine what it would feel like or it will feel like the moment 
we step into the presence of our Lord or by God's grace, witness his return to finish what he started. After his resurrection and his appearances to many of his disciples, the disciples were standing there. The Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 1, he, he began to ascend to heaven and two angels appeared. And they said, why do you stand here gazing into the heavens for this same Jesus who is being taken up from you will return in like manner. He's coming back. I will see you again. Those of us who claim the name of Christ, that is, who follow him, who love him, we will see him again. Amen. With our own eyes, our faith will become sight. And the joy that will consume us on that day will be every bit worth all the sorrow and grief that we could possibly experience in this life. Because then we will experience what Jesus and the Gospels and the New Testament writers seek to remind us of constantly, a perfect joy. When the disciples would see Jesus again, Jesus promised that their hearts would rejoice and that no one would take their joy away. And then after he he speaks concerning the the idea of prayer, of asking the Father in his name, he says that that would result in their joy being made full. The reality of the resurrection is the very foundation upon which perfect joy rests. Now, what is perfect joy? Now, have you experienced joy? Well, very possibly so, but, but not perfect joy. Not yet. It might be great joy. It might be something wonderful, but it's, it's still yet imperfect. But, but these things, the resurrection and the promises of Christ tell us that they would give way to a perfect joy that would come because of Jesus was alive. Now, what is perfect joy? Well, he tells us here that no one would take this joy away. No one. And that it would be joy to the full. So it's perfect in both its length and its height. It's 100% joy. It's not 80% or 90% or 99%. But it's 100% joy. And it's forever joy. It's not for a while. It's not in the momentary circumstance. But forever. No one will take your joy away. You will rejoice. And no one will take that joy away. And your joy will be full. Jesus' resurrection inaugurated this promised joy. And by inaugurated, it began something that's, that's going to be completed. It, it gave us the opportunity to experience this joy here and now that he talks about. However, not fully perfected. But nevertheless, a joy that he promises to all who follow him. But it will be fully consummated when we too, like the disciples, see him With our own eyes again. This joy is not the joy that the world gives. But a joy that the Bible says is unfading and full of glory. This is the reason that Paul could write in his letter to the Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always bearing in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is not at work, so death is at work in us, but life in you. And we began this morning by looking at several passages of Scripture that established the testimony of the, the commonality of sorrow and grief for us in this life. But that isn't the full story. That falls short of the, of the story that, that the gospel, the good news teaches us. And so I want to conclude today by looking at a few passages of Scripture that speak to this joy that comes through our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the Psalms, we read several verses that speak like this. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's that 100% joy, forever joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Another psalm reads this way. Sing praises to the Lord. O you his saints and give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 68 reads, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. There's a promise. Isaiah writes it this way. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Jeremiah writes, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. John reminds us in chapter 15 that Jesus says these things I have spoken to you, uh, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Paul writes to the Romans saying that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Many of you are very familiar with Galatians 5. 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Peter writes, you know, the one that said, when this trials come, don't act as though you're surprised. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see Now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as we enter this Advent season, we're reminded that with the coming of our Lord and Savior came joy. But don't stop short of the story. Because this Advent season that we begin to celebrate even now doesn't conclude with a baby in a manger. It concludes with a risen, reigning Lord. And it is because of that conclusion 
that Luke could write in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round all around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them fear not for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And it's because of his first coming, and the conclusion of which we know is yet to happen, that is his second coming, that we can sing with more than just a repetitiveness, songs like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. So how is your joy this morning? Are you walking in sorrow and grief? Because if you are, don't be surprised. That's what Peter said. Because it's going to be the mark of this life often. But if you or a follower of Christ, then your hope, your focus is not in the difficulties that are facing you in this moment. It doesn't mean that they're not significant. It doesn't mean that they're not real, but your focus is not on them. You look beyond them. You look to the risen Savior who has said to you, I have come to bring you joy. And I've come that that joy not be like the joy that this world or the, the, the counterfeit joy this world offers. That's robbed, comes and goes on the highs and lows. But a joy that no one can take from you. And that that joy would be to the full. And so I pray this morning, wherever you may be in your walk with Christ. That your hope and your focus would be upon the promise of our risen reigning Lord. Who came the first time. That he might come again. And when we see him. All that you experience. Good and bad will pale in light of his glory. And his grace. Fully realized. Forever. Father we love you. We thank you for the promises your word gives to us. Because we believe this word. It is not just a story. It is the story. Lord, I pray this morning for all that are here. I know not the circumstances that may be surrounding the, the many different lives here, but you do. You're fully aware. You're in control. You're sovereign over the circumstances of our life. So, God, I pray for for all those who are here who are followers of Christ, who have repented and believed the gospel, that, Lord, you would would use the sorrow and griefs of their lives to, to magnify the hope of indescribable joy that belongs to them because of you. I pray that we would allow our difficulties to to point us in that direction rather than wallowing in our sorrow. 
But then, Lord, for those who might be here who, who have not truly followed you, whether they've made a verbal profession or whether they're, they're good people, do good things, but they haven't truly trusted in you, believed the gospel, repented of their sins, and died to sin, that they might be raised with you. I pray, Lord, that you would use their sorrows and their griefs to point them to a sovereign, risen, reigning Lord. I pray that you would use their difficulties to help them see the futility of their lives, the futility of their own efforts, and cause them to fall before the cross, trusting absolutely and fully in you, that they too could have that very same hope of indescribable joy. So, Father, we ask you to work in our hearts in these moments and in and even beyond these moments concerning your word, may you drive it into our, our hearts. May you use it to transform us, to conform us to the image of our Savior, to convict, of, convict us of our sins, and to cause us to express worship for you, both in our words and in our walk. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.